Well, last month uh, we looked at 10 different reasons why we can trust the Bible, why we can be confident that it's inspired. Uh, does anyone remember any of those reasons? Matt's Faces was our acronym, which is a good acronym to remember, but does anyone remember any of the actual points besides Matt's Faces? Because if someone comes to you and says, hey, you know, is there any evidence for the Bible? And you say, Matt's Faces, I don't think that's going to help them much. So um, what do you, anyone remember anything? Fulfilled prophecy. Fulfilled Survival. Survival. Manuscript evidence, good. Archaeological verification, good. There you go, good. So manuscript evidence, author's honesty about failures, transforming power for good, testimony of Jesus, survival, fulfilled prophecy, archaeological verification, consistent internally, external verification, and scientific accuracy. So we noted that there's plenty of evidence to back up the fact that the Bible is trustworthy, that the Bible is inspired. But when it comes to this topic of the trustworthiness of the Bible, there is one objection that is raised definitely by far more than any other. And if a, a skeptic or a critic were to be listening to last month's message, this is probably what they would come at. They would say, you know what, you might have fulfilled prophecy. You might have you know, some archaeological verification. You might have this or that. But that doesn't change the fact that the Bible is still full of contradictions. That's what people love to claim, love to throw out there. And I'm sure most of you have heard someone say this to you, and it leads us to a very important question. Is the Bible full of contradictions? Well, the answer is no. You might be thinking, well, if the answer is no, then why is it that I hear so many people make this claim? Why is it so many people are saying the Bible is full of contradictions if it's not? Well, there are two main reasons why people say that there are contradictions in the Bible. The first and by far the most common, uh, the reason that people say there are contradictions in the Bible is because they're totally ignorant on the topic and they're just repeating something they've heard someone else say. Now, this shouldn't surprise us because all of us, I'm confident, are guilty of saying something was a fact that we didn't investigate, that we didn't really know about, that we were just repeating what we heard someone else say. So, so all of us do that. Uh, and let me give you a few, a few examples uh, of this to try to give you an idea of what I'm talking about here. How many of you ever said coffee stunts your growth? That actually is completely false. Uh, they've done plenty of studies to find that out, uh, and there is nothing that proves that uh, coffee at all will stunt a uh, child's growth. Now, it was started because parents didn't want their kids to drink coffee, and so they say, oh, it'll stunt your growth, and so you can't have it, but there's no evidence to back that up. And so, you know, if you've been saying to people, oh, coffee stunts your growth, you're repeating something that you heard someone else say as a fact, but didn't look into and just repeating it. Um, another one, my mom used to say, to me because I grew up with bad eyesight before I got laser surgery, and she would say, eating lots of carrots will improve your eyesight. And maybe some of you have stated that statement. Well, once again, it's false. Uh, carrots, they do help the health of your eye, uh, but they do not in any way, shape, or form produce better eyesight. This is actually an interesting story of why this started. It started in World War II, and English pilots uh, were claiming that they had such great night vision, that's why they were able to shoot down the German enemy fighters. And the reason that they threw this out is because they didn't want the Germans to know that they had radar. Uh, and the reason they said that they have such good eyesight is because they ate lots of carrots. 
Uh, and so that's where it actually started from. And since then, people have kept saying, oh, carrots make your eyes better, which, once again, is just repeating something that isn't true. Now, when I was in Scotland, it was commonly said, if you go out in the rain with wet hair, you are going to catch a cold. Once again, that's not true. Cold weather, wet hair, and chills do not cause colds. Viruses do. Now, people tend to catch more colds in the winter, but um, that's just because viruses are more easily spread then. Now, here's one that my mom also said to me. How many of you said, cracking your knuckles will cause arthritis? Well, the people who probably told you that are the people who don't like the sound of cracking knuckles. And so, you know, they tell you that, but really all it produces is sore knuckles. It does not produce arthritis. So the reason I share all these examples is to help you see the fact that we are all guilty of repeating something and saying, oh, this is a fact. This is true without having taken the time to investigate it and just, you know, throwing it out there uh, because we've heard someone else say it. And this is very much the case when people come and make that claim, oh, the Bible is full of contradictions. Most people are just ignorantly repeating something that they've heard someone else say was a fact, and now they have assumed this must be true. They haven't investigated it. I would say the majority of people that are going to make that statement to you are not someone that went through the Bible and they say, well, here's a contradiction and here's a contradiction. They probably have never even read a Bible, but yet they'll still throw that statement out at you. So a good response when someone says that to you is just to grab your Bible, hand it to them, and say, show me one. And right away, you're going to see whether or not they've actually investigated this, whether they've really looked into this, because if they're like, oh, well, um, uh, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, well, yeah, then you realize, okay, you're just repeating something that you've heard someone else say without ever reading or investigating it for yourself, and then hopefully you get the opportunity to share with them. Actually, the Bible is not full of contradictions, and here is why. Now, there are some people, if you were to hand them your Bible and say, hey, show me a contradiction, they would say, Thanks for the opportunity. And they would turn to certain verses or certain passages of Scripture, and they would say, here is a contradiction. So this brings us to the second reason why people say there are contradictions in the Bible. It's because they believe that they have discovered a contradiction while reading the Bible. So this is a, a much better group. You know, they're actually reading, they're actually investigating, they think they've found something. And this isn't just for critics and skeptics. These are Christians who often come to a passage where they think, uh-oh, I just found a contradiction. This isn't good. Uh, and so, you know, you have this group of people that, that believe that they've done this. And with each one of these claims, the critic or the, the Christian, they really make a mistake in the way that they interpret the Bible. And so tonight, the two different things that we're going to focus on here is, first, we're going to look at mistakes in interpretation that critics or Christians make when they believe that there are contradictions uh, in the Bible. And second, we're going to look at some of the popular, more apparent, supposed contradictions and see why they're actually not contradictions at all. So first, let's look at the mistakes in interpretation that are so often made when reading through the Bible. And, and I want you to take note of these because I know in my early years in Christianity, I made a lot of these mistakes, uh, and probably you might see that you've made some or are still making some of these mistakes now. So if a person, whether it's a critic or a studier of the Bible, believes that he or she has discovered a contradiction, it's safe to say that they've made a mistake in interpretation. Now, there's many mistakes that you can make in interpreting the Bible. We're just going to focus on six of them, the six most prominent ones tonight. And I encourage you to take note of these so that hopefully you do not continue to do this if you are doing this now. 
The most common mistake people make while trying to interpret the Bible is failing to understand the context. This is by far, when I hear people, you know, come to me and they're sharing something of, oh, this doesn't make sense or whatever, it almost always comes back to this reality that they just don't know the context in which that verse that they're quoting uh, sits in. And so something we need to remember when we are studying the Bible is that every word in the Bible is part of a verse. Every verse is part of a paragraph. Every paragraph is part of a chapter. Every chapter is part of a book. And every book is part of the Bible as a whole. All of it's connected. The context is so important. You can't just draw out a verse without keeping it in its context or you're going to come up with lots of problems. And that's the most common things that critics do. They take verses out of their context. And when you do that, you can pretty much make the scripture say anything. Uh, let me give you some examples of what I'm talking about. If you were to take part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount out of context, you could definitely try to convince people that Jesus taught it's okay to hate your enemy. Because in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, if this is all you read to them, notice what Jesus says. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, if you take this verse out of its context, you say, well, see, Jesus says you only need to love your neighbor, but you know what? You get to hate your enemy, and everyone's like, wonderful, I've been waiting for this truth, now I can do this. And so you could easily, if you're taking this out of context, try to build a case that Jesus claims you should hate your enemy. But when you put that verse back in its context, you look at the verses before and after, you will notice the context in which it was written. Notice Jesus says, you have heard that was said. So other people have said this, not me. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use and persecute you. And so within the right context, you realize Jesus is saying some people claim you can hate your enemies, but I'm telling you, you need to love them. But see how easy it would be just pulling one verse out and trying to make a claim that isn't true. One of the most quoted verses in the Bible is Philippians 4.13. And I've actually had a couple people try to do this with me. You know, we know it well. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And um, I remember a guy coming up to me and th telling me, you know what? This is saying that we can do anything, you know, and God will give us strength. So, I mean, I could be a thief and God will give me strength. You know, I can be a drug addict. God will give me strength. I can do all things. You know, this is a, a verse that's teaching us that we can do anything we want and God approves of it and strengthens us in it. And once again, he's just pulling one verse out of its context, not understanding what the verse is actually speaking of. But now, if we take the verses before and after, and we look at the context, we notice Paul says, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and suffer needs. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me." So when you look at these verses, you realize Paul is speaking about God strengthening him to handle any circumstances. Hey, when I was poor and a base and had nothing, he strengthened me. When I had plenty, he strengthened me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is not speaking about I can do whatever sinful thing I want. So whenever someone quotes a verse, look at the context, the verses before it, the verses after it, to make sure that they're using the verse in its proper context. And whenever you're studying the Bible, this is huge. And this is one of the reasons why I love when I got connected with Calvary Chapel of the verse-by-verse -verse teaching of the Bible because it really keeps you within the context. You just continue to go through. You've looked at what was before. You're continuing to look at what's after. Uh, and so it helps you to see the context in which different things are written. So 
The first mistake, people don't look at the context. Second mistake that is often used in interpretation is presuming that the Bible approves of all it records. It's a mistake to assume that everything contained in the Bible is commended by the Bible. You see, the whole Bible is true, but it records events where people lie. For example, Satan lies, and we see that Rahab lies. So it's important to understand that I'll put this up for you. The truth of Scripture is found in what the Bible reveals, not in what the Bible records. The truth of Scripture is contained in what the Bible reveals, not in what the Bible records. You see, unless this distinction is made, one could incorrectly conclude that the Bible teaches adultery and uh, murder is great because look at David. He committed adultery. He committed murder. It reveals those things, um, but you know, it records those things, as I say, but it reveals that they are sinful and we shouldn't do them. There are many people who think that the Bible approves of polygamy. Because it records the fact that David had many wives, that Solomon had even more, uh, but it also records, uh, uh, reveals that polygamy is completely wrong. Reveals that both David and Solomon, not only were they in sin, but they had plenty of consequences to having this many wives. Probably the most significant one would they have a lot of mother-in-laws. But um, the reality here is they're, they're revealing this truth. So just because the Bible records something doesn't mean that it's approving of it. So when people presume the Bible approves all it records, once again, they're making a mistake in interpretation and sometimes feel like, oh, there's a contradiction, uh, but there's not really one. A third mistake in interpretation is assuming that a partial, partial report is a false report. It's a mistake to assume that just because one gospel writer included or omitted a detail that another gospel writer added, that all of a sudden there must be an error or a contradiction. You know, if that were the case, then we'd have to throw out all the evening news programs that we watch. Because one news program might write about, you know, some, you know, uh, madman enters the bank. And then the other news program says, well, he shot a teller and stole $100,000. Well, the first news program didn't tell us that. So is there a contradiction? No, the first news program just shared one detail, this madman who enters the bank. The second one gives a fuller picture. Well, not only did he enter the bank, but he shot the teller and he took $100,000. And you know, then you might get another you know, news program that gives you a little more detail or, or a little less detail. But they're just giving different um, bits of information. But there's no contradiction just because one gives partial and one gives gives more full information. So that's something that we need to understand, and we're going to look at one of those instances a little later. So when someone assumes a partial report is a false report, they can make some big mistakes in interpretation and assume there must be some contradiction. A fourth mistake in interpretation is neglecting to note that the Bible uses different literary styles. The Bible's authors, they use different literary styles just like we do today in the way in which we write, the way in which we speak, allegories, metaphors, similes, uh, hyperboles, poetries, figure of speech. And so when we interpret the Bible, we need to take these different literary styles into consideration so that we don't come up to a conclusion that says, oh, contradiction. Let me give you a couple of examples of what I'm talking about. Psalm 89:26 says this, he shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Psalm 36, 7, how precious is your loving kindness, O God. Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. 
Now, is the psalmist teaching us that God is an actual rock or that, you know, he is a bird with wings? No. This is a metaphor, words about God that are not meant to be literally taken, but comparisons to the Lord. And we understand that in our different literary techniques and speeches that we have. Another example is this, Psalm 6.6. I am weary with my groanings. All night I make my bed swim. I drench, drench my couch with my tears. Now, is David telling us that he cried so much that he filled the room with water from his tears and it went floating? No, this is definitely a hyperbole. It's a deliberate and obvious exaggeration. David's telling us he just cried a lot that night. You know, we're not to think, oh my goodness, how did David do that? I mean, look at that, the whole room flooded. I mean, that's not what he's telling us. But yet, if we don't understand these differences, you can come to all sorts of wild things and be like, well, obviously this isn't scientific or whatever. No one can cry that much. But, you know, understand that's just the literary style in which the author was writing. A fifth mistake people make when using the Bible is forgetting that the Bible uses non-technical, everyday language. A passage that many uh, critics would attack that the Bible has is in um, Joshua 10.13, and they would say, well, here's an obvious contradiction. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped till the people had revenge upon their enemies. See any problem with what this verse says scientifically? Well, the critic would say this is obviously an error because it contradicts the known facts of science. The sun doesn't stand still. But understand, this response doesn't take into consideration the fact that this author is just using non-technical everyday language just like we do today. Now, in our technological age where we have more scientific understanding, where we have satellites that show us you know, everything out in space that we can see, we say the sun rose this morning and the sun set this evening. Does the sun rise and the sun set? No. <laughs> the earth moves on its axis and it just looks like it's doing that. So we're just using non-technical everyday language, even though we know that's not scientific. That's not a scientific statement, but we understand what someone is making that statement, what they're saying. The same thing in Joshua. He's not literally meaning that. It's just a non-technical everyday statement uh, of what they were able to see transpire. So... We need to understand the Bible uses this kind of language, and therefore, when people say, oh, wait, contradiction, that's just a mistake they're making. A sixth mistake, and the final one we're going to look at uh, when interpreting the Bible, is assuming that the unexplained is not explainable. I want you to think about this. When a scientist comes upon an anomaly in nature, he does not give up further scientific expo uh, exploration. Instead, the unexplained usually motivates further study. Scientists once couldn't explain meteors, eclipses, uh, tornadoes, hurricanes, earthquakes. Until recently, scientists didn't know how a bumblebee could fly. Even now, scientists don't know how life can grow on thermal vents in the depths of the sea. But no scientist throws in the towel and screams, contradiction. They just keep trying to figure out the unknowable. Because they figure, you know what, we give enough study and time, we're going to discover it. In the same way, Christians should approach the Bible with the same presumption that there are answers to the unexplained. We might not know it yet, but understand that there are answers to these things. You know, critics would assert that Moses could not have written the first five books of the Bible. Why? Because at that time they claimed that advanced writing wasn't in existence. Well, archaeologists have proven that there was advanced writing at least three centuries before Moses' day, and so all of a sudden that claim was thrown out the window. There were critics who say, well, the Hittites that the Bible mentions never existed. We don't have any uh, evidence of them existing outside of the pages of Scripture. 
Well, all Christians would say was, we don't really know, but we believe that this is true. And then all of a sudden, we had an archaeologist discover uh, the whole Hittite people uh, and, uh, or a village with the, you know, that uh, in modern-day Iraq. And so, you know, once again, uh, we have these things that, that show us this reality. So six mistakes that people make. Failing to understand the context, presuming that the Bible approves of all it records, assuming that a partial report is a false report, neglecting to note that the Bible uses different literary styles, forgetting that the Bible uses non-technical everyday language, and assuming that the unexplained is not explainable. And I encourage you to think about these six things as you're studying the Bible, as you're interpreting scripture, to make sure you're not doing this. And as I mentioned, probably the most common one is trying to take verses out of their context and making them say something that they actually don't. Uh, and so just be careful not to make these mistakes, because at the end of the day, what can it do is not just, oh, is there a contradiction or not, but you can start applying things that the Bible isn't really telling you to apply to your life. And so that in itself is obviously a problem. Well, now that we've looked at the first main point that I wanted us to note tonight, uh, it brings us to the second thing, resolving apparent contradictions. There are several passages of scriptures that critics really like to come to that claim, oh, these are just clear contradictions, and it just shows that the Bible that you have is just full of them, and we can't trust it. Uh, and so there's five that I want us to note tonight. There, there's more that critics throw out, but we're going to highlight these five main ones that are often um, attacked. And the first one it's really not hard to figure out. Uh, the reason I throw it out is, you know, recently... Um, well, it's actually over Jesus's occupation. Uh, and Peter Jennings, a journalist for the ABC, he did a special called The Search for Jesus, and he brought up this apparent contradiction. I was watching this show in hopes that it would actually be done well, and I was very disappointed, especially when it started with this. But um, this contradiction over, you know, what was Jesus's occupation? And notice what, you know, he throws out here. Mark 6.3 says this, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. So this verse clearly tells us that Jesus' occupation was a carpenter. I'm sure you were already familiar with that if you studied the Gospels. Well, notice what Matthew chapter 13, verses 54 and 55 say. And when he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? So Peter Jennings said in his program that the Gospels contradict one another. For one says Jesus was a carpenter, another says his father was the carpenter. Now I have to admit, as I was watching this, I was very frustrated with Peter Jennings and thinking, you're supposed to be an investigative reporter? Uh, you know, this is an obvious one. I think Scarlett could probably have figured this one out if she read it a couple times. But, you know, there's no contradiction at all in this. You know, one is just telling us Jesus was a carpenter. The other is telling us Jesus' father was a carpenter. Now, if, you know, Mark said that Jesus wasn't a carpenter uh, and another said that Jesus was a carpenter, well, obviously that's a contradiction. But one is just saying Jesus is a carpenter. The other is saying his father's a carpenter. And if you know anything about Jewish culture... The father would always take his trade that he did for a living and pass it on to his son. So Joseph was a carpenter. He passed on that to Jesus. And then Jesus became a carpenter. So this is one of those easy ones. I just threw it out there just to show you know, how people are just searching for contradictions, even when they're obviously clearly not there from an investigative reporter, nonetheless. But um, so that one's kind of obvious. They're both 
carpenters. Uh, a second apparent contradiction has to do with the number of angels at Jesus' tomb. And this is one of the more popular ones out there that critics have thrown out at the scripture. Uh, it has to do with different accounts in Matthew 28 uh, compared to John 20. In Matthew 28, verses 2 through 5, we're told, And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel, singular, of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothes with white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel, singular, answered and said to the woman, do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. So Matthew clearly says there's one angel that's there at the tomb. Well, notice what John chapter 20 verses 11 and 12 say. But Mary stood outside the tomb weeping and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels. How many? Two. In white, sitting, one at the head, the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus was laying. So from John's account, there are clearly two angels at the tomb. So the critics will say, well, clearly a contradiction. We got Matthew saying there's one, John they're saying two. See, you can't trust the Bible. But is this really a contradiction as these critics suppose? Well, not at all. The critic is making mistake number three, assuming that a partial report is a false report. Let me give you an example to help you see why this isn't a contradiction. Let's say I go home after church and tell my wife, Jenny, hey, Ray and Myrna were at church tonight. Now, if Colson came to my house a little bit later and said to Jenny, hey, only Ray was at church tonight, would Colson be contradicting me? Yes. Because I said Ray and Myrna, and he said only Ray was at church tonight. Now, if I went home to my wife and I said Ray and Myrna were at church tonight, and then Colson came by later and just said Ray was at church tonight, with no mention of Myrna, would he be contradicting me? No, because Ray was at church tonight. He just didn't say that Myrna was as well. He just gave less information than I did. And so it's not a contradiction to give partial information. It's not all of a sudden, you know, this false Thing. Omission of details does not necessarily constitute a contradiction. The same is true with the accounts of the angels at the tomb of Christ. Matthew chose to mention one angel, the angel that spoke. That's what he's focusing on, the one that spoke to the women. John, on the other hand, he's focusing on the ones that they saw, and they saw two of them. So Matthew's just giving a partial report of, hey, there was an angel that spoke, and I want to tell you what he said. John doesn't give us that information. He just shares, oh, they saw these two angels. Angels, And so, you know, there's no contradiction here. It's just that one is not giving as full of a report as the other. Now, if one were to say there's only one angel and the other were to say there were two angels, yes, that would be a contradiction. But that's not what we have here. A third apparent contradiction that crit critics of the Bible commonly use is with genies, uh, genies, uh, Jesus' genealogical record. Yeah, there are genies, their genealogical record goes really far back. But uh, critics point out there's a difference. And you've probably read this. If you've looked at Matthew or you've looked at Luke, uh, you've noticed this probably before, that there's different names in the genealogical record in Matthew than there are in Luke. And you're thinking, oh, wait a second. That's not right. How come there's different names? What's going on here? And if you just take a moment to think about it, it actually makes plenty of sense because if you were to do a little family tree yourself and to figure out your genealogical record, guess what? You would start with two lists that are different names. Why? Because one would go through your father and one would go through your mother. And those names wouldn't be the same because you would have your father and his father and back and back and back. Then you'd have your mother and her father and back and back and back. And that's what we see 
here uh, with Matthew and with Luke. One is paternal, looking at the earthly father of Joseph, and then the other is maternal, looking at Mary and going back all the way to David. And so there's nothing wrong with this. Every one of us have two genealogies focusing both on the mother and the father that we have because we all have to have a mom and dad in order to be born. Uh, And so... Once again, people who are like, I can't believe this. This is so clear contradiction. No, it's not. It actually makes plenty of sense. Uh, And so that is what is transpiring there. A fourth apparent contradiction that critics have pointed out has to do with Jesus' location when he healed a blind man. Now, this one is probably, I would say, I would give credit to them for finding this. And there was, it's difficult. Like, what do you do with this? I want you to know in Luke and in Mark, what we hear, uh, and then I'll tell you uh, what we have discovered to uh, find the answer to this. In Luke chapter 18, verses 35 through 38, it says, Then it happened as Jesus was approaching Jericho that a certain blind man sat by the road begging, and hearing a multitude passing by, he asked what it meant. So they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by, and he cried out, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, notice Luke says that Jesus heals this blind man as he was approaching Jericho. Just keep that in mind as we go to Mark's gospel, chapter 10, verse 46. Now, as they came to Jericho, as Jesus went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. And when he had heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So notice this. Mark says that Jesus uh, went out of Jericho. Luke says he healed this blind man as he approached Jericho. And so you can see the critics saying, well, you got a problem here. Can't be both. It was either he was leaving or he was coming. Which one is it going to be? Both of them say two very different things. And now you say, well, wait a second. This isn't a partial report. These are definitely contradictory statements. Uh, And so now you're thinking, what's going on? Well, In this instance, the critic makes the mistake number six, assuming that the unexplained is not explainable. Now, this was definitely a problem for Christians until uh, 1907, when a German archaeologist by the name of Ernest Sellin, he was working on an excavation in Israel, and he discovered something quite fascinating. He discovered that they were actually twin cities of Jericho at the time of Jesus. There was the old city of Jericho, the one that we're familiar with. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. The walls come tumbling down. So that city still exists. They rebuilt that up. But they also built a new city just a mile away from it, which was considered the new city of Jericho. So you have two cities, both called Jericho, right next to each other. And so ultimately, Mark is referring to, and Luke are referring to a miracle that transpires right in the middle of both. He's leaving one city, that's why one's able to say when he left, and he's approaching the other city, that's why the other's able to say he was approaching it. Uh, And so once again, you see that there is an answer to this. Uh, It's just understanding that you just needed a little more information. And fortunately for us, as we looked at, you know, last month, the archaeological verification for the Bible, you have over 25,000 archaeological finds, and those things give us insights like this that help us to understand these things. And so the critic who assumes that this is a contradiction without knowing the evidence makes the sixth mistake, which is assuming that the unexplained is not explainable. So uninformed critics of the Bible error when they hold the Bible guilty, not knowing the facts of archaeology or history or other things. A fifth apparent contradiction that critics point to has to do with the timing of the Passover meal. 
It seems there is a contradiction between the timing of the Passover meal recorded by Mark and recorded by John. Mark chapter 14, verse 12 says, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? In the evening he came with the twelve. Now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. So Mark records what we're so familiar with. Jesus eats the Passover meal on the night that he is betrayed, that night that he ultimately dies. Now notice in John's gospel, we see something a little different. John chapter 18, verse 28, Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning, but they themselves did not want to go into the praetorium. Why? Lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover, speaking of later that day, after Jesus and the disciples ate it the night before. So according to John, the Sadducees are celebrating the Passover meal on the day of Jesus' crucifixion, and the Mark Gospel says it's on the evening right before it. Uh, and so, wait a second, we have two different accounts here. One's on one day, the other's on the other day. What do we do with this? Well, once again, um, we have information, both from extra-biblical sources, that reveal a very important reality. Was it the Passover meant to be uh, done the day that Jesus did it or the next day that the Sadducees did it? Uh, the reality is they're recording two actual events because uh, we see from Josephus, uh, a Jewish historian, and the Mishnah, which is a comparison, uh, a compilation of writings from Jewish scholars. These two sources reveal that the Pharisees and the Sadducees disagreed about the day of the week which to celebrate the Passover. The Pharisees believed that you celebrated the day that Jesus did. The Sadducees believed that you celebrated the day after. Uh, and so they had this conflict, and so they both celebrated it on different days. And this explains why John says the, uh, the Sadducees were preparing themselves to eat the Passover, where you know the other gospel says that Jesus and his disciples already had the night before done this. So who was right, the Pharisees or the Sadducees? When should they have been taking the Passover? Well, the, Sadducees, or the Pharisees were. How do we know that? Because Jesus, God, did it on that night. And so we know that that's the proper nights and they had the wrong one, uh, which they had a lot of things wrong. So once again, the alleged contradiction is cleared up. And so here are five things that you might have thrown at you if you talk with someone about this topic. Was Jesus a carpenter? Was his father a carpenter? If you sit down with Peter Jennings, both of them were carpenters, Peter Jennings. Uh, how many angels were at a tomb? One that spoke, another that did not, that makes two. Why is Jesus' genealogical record filled with different names? One that goes through his mother Mary, the other goes through his father Joseph. Where was Jesus when he was healed? Uh, when he healed a blind man between the two cities of Jericho, the old and new? And when did the Jews celebrate the Passover meal? Some the day before the crucifixion and some the evening of Jesus' crucifixion. So these are just five examples that people throw at us as Christians. And you say, well, well there's got to be more than that. Yeah, there are. Do we have answers to those as well? Yes, we do. Could we spend all night doing it? Yes, but I don't think you want to. But I do have a source for those that are interested in this topic. Uh, Norman Geisler and Thomas Howe, uh, they wrote a book titled The Big Book of Bible Difficulties. Uh, it goes from Genesis to Revelation, taking every possible contradiction that people will throw out, and it deals with other things as well. Uh, Geisler is a, a very, very... Uh, 
brilliant guy. I love his books. But um, so if you're interested in this topic, you want to know more, uh, especially if someone brings a particular um, thing that they say, oh, this is a contradiction. This is a great resource to have because you can go look it up and, you know, he'll explain uh, why that's not the case. And he'll take you through, you know, some of these uh things that people do to uh, misinterpret scripture. And I only covered six uh, in his book. He'll cover more than that. But uh, the main point of tonight was I want you to understand that you can be completely confident in God's word being trustworthy. We looked at evidence last month. But, you know, if you do hear someone make that statement, the Bible's just full of contradictions. Realize, no, it's not. Uh, you can trust it. And I always, you know, love to use the old tactic of just handing it to them and just kind of for the purpose of finding out where they're at. Uh, and when they come and they're just like, oh, I've never read it before. It's like, well, then why are you making that statement? Uh, and so that you can get better, you know, dialogue with them. But if they're like, oh, well, here, let me turn to the Gospels and let me show you, you know, the angels at the tomb or let me show you this or that, you know, hopefully then, you know, you won't be like stumbling and, and figuring out, oh, just realize there are answers to these things. Uh, and if you don't know right then and there, don't try to make up an answer. Just say, you know what, that's a great question. Let me investigate it and I'll get back with you because as you do investigate it, you'll discover that that's not a contradiction. There's an answer for them, a logical one that you can share with them. And, and I just want to throw that out as a little side note. Don't answer questions that you don't know the answers to. This is something that frustrates me. I used to do it, and I frustrate myself looking back on it. You want to have an answer because you just want to tell them something, and they, they give you a good question, and you're like, um, well, and then you just kind of make up something, and they go away just thinking, man, you Christians are idiots. Uh, because, you know, usually our answer is just, you know, because we don't know what we're talking about, and we just throw out something. It's so much better, and people respect it so much more to say, you know what, that's a great question. I haven't actually given that one very much thought. Let me do that. Let me think through that. Let me and study that for a little bit, and I'll come back to you, and we'll talk about it. And they'll respect that to, for you to say, you know what, that's good. I, I haven't thought through everything about the Bible or everything about Christianity, and that's a wonderful question. Let me get back to you. Instead of, oh, you asked a question, I need to respond. And so you just start kind of rambling some different stuff out there. And, you know, that's not healthy for them because they're not getting something that's right, and they're assuming that we don't have what's right, uh, and we don't want them to come that that place either. So uh, just a little side note when you're conversing with people who are truly interested in what it is that we're sharing. Because I think a good tactic to get into, if someone says, you know, they're wanting evidence or whatever, they're coming and having this conversation. When I took an apologetics class, he always used to say, the first thing you should start with is asking them, what is it that I would have to prove to you in order for you to believe Whatever it is, that Jesus is God, that he's the Messiah, that he rose from the dead, that the Bible's trustworthy. Whatever topic they're wanting to say, let them tell you what it is that they would need in order for that to be proven to them. And the reason you need to do this, and I found it out the hard way myself, is because if someone to say, well, prove to me that Jesus really existed, you do that. They'll have you jump through another hoop. Well, prove to me that he actually died. You do that. Okay, well, prove to me that he rose from the dead. You do that. They don't really, really want answers. They just want to make you jump through hoop after hoop until they can find a hoop that you can't get through. Uh, and so what you want to do is just start with, hey, what do I have to prove to you? And then once you prove to them what they said would give them enough evidence to believe, then you say, okay, let's talk about now, do you believe? Well, actually, prove to me this. Well, no, no, no. You're the one who said that if I could prove this to you, that's all you would need. So it's really not a matter of enough evidence. It's just a matter of you don't want to believe. Uh, so it's a good starting point to kind of see where they're at and to give you a, a guideline as to what you're going to, you know, communicate with them. If you don't do that, you'll just be jumping through hoop after hoop after hoop uh, and probably get nowhere. But uh, hopefully that helps. Um, as I mentioned, next month, uh, we're going to do a teaching on 
worship, well, we, more specifically, Colson. Uh, and so I encourage you to come out for that. Uh, it'll be great, I'm sure. Come on, Colson. Get some confidence over there. So let's just uh, pray and thank the Lord for this time. Father, we, we are so thankful that your word is trustworthy. Uh, Lord, that we can base our lives on it, we can base our eternity on it, uh, and that there is so much evidence to support it, God, that it was not just some blind leap into the absurd that we as Christians have to have, but yet we can have a confident uh, belief in your word, Lord, because there is so much to back it up. And I just pray, God, as we are seeing the Bible attacked in our country more than ever before, Lord, that we would be those that would be the light and the voice to help people see that, no, it's not full of contradictions and errors and, you know, that we can trust it and there is evidence for it. And, uh, God, that if we're not able to communicate that, then no one's going to be. So we just pray, Lord, that you would help us first and foremost as believers in you to have confidence in your word, uh, but also just to be those that uh, would take the time to share with those that are interested and are maybe a little skeptical uh, the evidence and the reason why we believe these truths. Uh, and so I pray that these things that we've looked at tonight and the things that we looked at last month, Lord, that um, especially when we need them, that your spirit would bring them to our remembrance uh, so that we might share them uh, with those who are inquiring about these things. And so uh, we are grateful uh, for your goodness to us and the truth that you bring. Uh, and we just pray for uh, just boldness uh, to be willing to share with those that don't know these things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.